Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can sing that song this morning. That we are not stuck, that we are not chained to, that we have been set free. And God, I pray that as we have thought about those words and we've sung those words, God, that you would awaken our hearts to the beauty of this truth. God, that we are set free. God, we pray that we would be truly grateful. God, that we would overflow with gratitude and thanksgiving, God, as we reflect on the fact that we aren't chained to our sins or to our past or to our struggles. God, I pray that now as we Look at the story of David, and we see a great man struggling in big ways. God, I pray that we would, we would learn, that we would see and we would hear, we would think about David's life and his scenario, God, and we would learn, that we would grow, that we would be warned, and that we would see your grace and your restoration. So God, help us this morning. Whatever we bring into the room, whatever we carry, whatever we struggle with, whatever stressor, whatever is on our mind, God, that we would hear. We would hear from your spirit. God, and then that, not that we would just hear, but that by the power of your spirit, we would have the courage and the strength to pursue you with everything that we have. And that's what we want, and that's what I want for myself. And so, God, that's what we pray, and we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor. We're thankful that you have chosen to worship here. Hopefully, you've gotten to meet someone. Hopefully, you felt welcomed. We certainly care about you. And we want to help you get connected to the body. Because living life alone is not fun. And it is hard and it is discouraging. And so church is a family and we want you to be part of our family, to be cared for and encouraged. And so if we can help you, if we can help you get connected, that's the beauty of the church. So fill out a connection card, come talk to me, talk to someone in the lobby. But we would love to help you meet people, make friends, and get connected. This morning, we're going to continue in 2 Samuel with our series on King David. If you could turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to be reading a significant portion here in 2 Samuel 11. I'll be reading from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the back. We also will have it on the screen. A familiar story, a story we know well, Um, but let's read it. I'm going to jump around a little bit, so I'll I'll make sure to let you know. Um, We'll start in verse 1 of 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. 
and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. She returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Skipping to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you had finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Skipping to chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, which he had bought. And he bought it. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. What an incredibly descriptive, powerful passage. We're talking about David. We've been talking about the greatness of David, but really more about the greatness of God. But we have been talking how David has relentlessly pursued God in everything. How he listened to him and he was available for him. How he was kind 
But to be really clear and upfront this morning, you read this passage and there is nothing great about David. Nothing. And you, you, if you were to hear this story in any other context, you turn on the news tonight and you were to hear this story laid out, you would be angry. A man who is morally corrupt, who's abusing his power, who is completely wicked and deserving of the maximum punishment. I mean, if you heard this story of someone in power who kills and lies and deceives and hurts, we would be enraged. And in our story this morning, we're talking about David, the man who was after God's heart, the man that we've been calling great after week after week after week. And so as we focus in on this story, three things that I want to kind of narrow in on is the power of sin, the power of confrontation, and the power of repentance. The power of sin. Okay, just thinking back to the story. Okay, I, I don't know what happened. I, for whatever reason, I had a fresh look on this passage as I was studying these last couple of weeks, just noticing things that I had not noticed. And as I was thinking about the story, the fact that David is on his roof, he sees Bathsheba, Bathsheba and he finds out who she is. He goes and gets her. She comes to him. That he calls Uriah home to get the report, hoping that when Uriah comes home for this report, to give this report that he will stay at his house. He will sleep with his wife and she'll be pregnant and his sin will be covered. But Uriah is too loyal. He's too committed. He, he refuses. He says, not while my men are fighting. I will sleep on the ground. But David, you just can feel this, this progression. I mean, he feels forced to do something. To cover this. And so the story gets worse. He writes the letter to Joab, the commander of chief. And he says, put him at the front of the battle. Withdraw your men and he will die. Your, Joab follows. He obeys and he does it. And Uriah dies. This popular story, this famous story. But I think it's so worthwhile for us to slow down and say, where what can we learn about greatness? A couple of things that struck me. Um, first was Uriah. Uriah, you know, sometimes you forget the relationships that, were, that people had. Uriah was not a faceless person to David. David knew Uriah. I was studying about when David was running from, from Saul, and he's in the cave, and you may know the story, but when David is desperate and he's dying, these 30 great men come and surround him, and these men were called David's mighty men, and David is desperate. He wants water, and these men leave the cave, and they risk their lives to go get David this water. And at the very end of this passage, where, where David is described as running from Saul for his own life, the passage closes and says, Uriah the Hittite was one of those 30. Uriah wasn't just another person. He was a man who gave his life for David. He was a friend. And I've always wondered, 
why David inquired who she was. The beginning of the passage, he says he, he inquired to who she was, and the servant says, well, maybe, I think it's Bathsheba, wife of Uriah. And the reason I wonder why he asked, because he does nothing with the information. If he was inquiring, he knew where she lived, so that's not why he's inquiring. If he was inquiring to weigh his decision, you would think the news that she is a married woman to one of your friends who gave his life for you, you would think that that would have caused him to slow down. And so we don't know exactly why he wondered who exactly she was, because it certainly didn't stop him. The impact of David's sin. I, one little verse in eleven seventeen was staggering to me as you Start to experience the fall or the messiness of sin. The desperation of David. 11.17 says, The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. David is so desperate. He is so lost in his sin that he is willing. He knows what's going to happen for other men to die to cover himself. That struck me this week. Just think about David's character here. Again, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, if you know nothing about David, and we're just looking at this passage, he has failed. He's failed. He's an adulterer who's coveted and lied and deceived and murdered. Not just one person, but innocent people who were his friends. He's broken almost all the, well, many of the Ten Commandments. Not a good start. And this is the same man who we've been saying he's, he's after God's heart. Same man who wrote in Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, oh my God, your law is written on my heart. And he meant it when he wrote, when he wrote that. What does this teach us? This is like heavy. It's like this is like discouraging to see this great man that we've been building up fail miserably in this passage. What does it teach us? What lessons must we learn? Why would God include this? And I think it's a powerful lesson. It's this idea that if the power of sin can do this to David... A great man who truly loves God, the power of sin can do it to you. The seeds or the, the heart of the most terrible atrocities are in every single one of us. Sin, when left unchecked, can grow and grow and grow until it has mass destruction in any of our lives. And this is what we see with King David, a man who truly was great, who truly loved God and wanted to follow God. But when sin was left unchecked, it came and it overpowered him and it destroyed. Typically, we think well, we're, we're good, like we're not that bad. We're not that capable of doing those things that we see other people doing. I was reading a story about FDR this week. 
when FDR was inaugurated as the, as the president of the United States, it was about the same time that Adolf Hitler was appointed as chancellor in Ger- Germany. And it was really interesting watching or reading about these two men and how they came into power. And how this was in the early 1930s. And how FDR was already hearing about Germany and Adolf Hitler and what was being done to the Jewish people. And in the early 1930s, people were upset. There were, there were people protesting the United Sta- in the United States saying to FDR, do something about this. This is not right. But instead, FDR focused on the amount of people who were without jobs. And he just continued to pursue helping people find jobs, even though in Germany, devastation continued to happen to Jewish people. For years, several years, this continued, where he focused on America, even though what he was hearing about in Germany was not good. It was headed to something bad. Until finally in the late 1930s, in 1937, he woke up to the report of a major attack in Germany called Kristallnacht. Crystal night, the night where gangs of Nazi soldiers roamed the streets, burning down businesses, thousands and thousands of Jewish businesses, killing Jewish people, sending Jewish people to concentration camps, and ravaging the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people. These gangs of people. And to see the government, Adolf Hitler, celebrate this. And it was at that moment, okay, four years, almost four years after he was inaugurated as president, that he finally says something. And here's what he says. He says, The news of the past few days from Germany has deeply shocked public opinion in the United States. I myself could scarcely believe that such things could occur in a 20th century civilization. FDR was in denial. He didn't think that such a civilized society, a culture that produces music and writes literature and is so well off, could produce such an atrocity. But he was wrong. The truth is sin in our hearts that we water and we take care of and we avoid taking and we avoid doing something about. If we allow it to grow, if we allow it to stay, it can produce devastation. And, and sadly, I mean, this is the narrative of the Bible, right? All great men fail in spectacular ways. If you read the Old Testament, some of the greatest men, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, I mean, Abraham lies and lies and lies in the same scenario, eight chapters apart. It's like, have you learned your lesson? Why are you lying? Jacob, the deceiver, the schemer, impatient, not trusting in God's promises that they would come to him, but taking the situation and manipulating it so he could have what he want when he wanted it. Moses, in the New Testament, the disciples, Peter, This is the story of the Bible that great men 
are not perfect. That great men fall in spectacular ways. It's like an acorn. Tim Keller describes this idea by, by comparing it to an acorn. I show an acorn to my kids and I say, kids, Caroline and Truman and Jack, you see this acorn? Out of this acorn can grow this massive oak tree. This massive oak tree. And Jack looks at me and he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe it. Like this little acorn. Jack, actually, in fact, this one acorn, hypothetically, could grow enough wood to cover this entire earth. This one acorn can do that, Jack. That if we take care of it, and if it grows, and we take care of the acorns that grow from the new trees that form, that this one acorn can grow enough wood to cover the entire world. And when we have our sin, and we, we plant it in our hearts, envy, Jealousy, our anger, our bitterness, impurity, lying. When we have these little sins and we, we hide them in our heart and we, we take care of them and we water them and we avoid dealing with them, they will grow. And this is exactly what happens with David. This is exactly what happens. And it started with a choice. Started with a choice. Verse 1, you remember verse 1? Everyone else was going to war. This was when kings go to war. And what does David do? When everyone else is going to war, he is sending people to war. But what does David do? He stays home. When you're counseling someone who has an addiction, there's a whole line of counseling that's based on avoiding relapse. It's called relapse prevention. And when you're working with someone who has addiction, it doesn't matter what the addiction is. There's this level or this kind of this area of counseling called relapse prevention where you're working with the person who is struggling and stuck. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to help them think one day at a time. You're helping them think about one choice at a time. Every single choice matters because when you're focused on relapse prevention, what you realize with someone who's addicted, who falls into relapse, is that it's not like you are clear and clean and free, then all of a sudden you are deep into the throes of relapse. It's not like that. Instead, what it usually is like is that over a myriad of choices, bad choices over an extended period of time, you find yourself in a, in a bad situation that causes you to relapse. And what these counselors are, are trying to do is they're trying to help you see these little choices that are taking you down somewhere where you don't want to go. And they're not necessarily bad choices. They're not necessarily um, wrong choices. Counselors call this SUD. Seemingly unimportant decisions, SUDs. And they help you as someone who's struggling to recognize these decisions are really important. And so the classic example of, the S, of SUDs is the person who's addicted, who's coming home from work one day, and he decides, I'm going to go the long way home. It's no big deal. I'm going to go a different way home. I'm going to stop and get gas. No big deal. And, and then they recognize, you know, oh, look, look what's across the street. It's the bar I used to go to. 
Oh, look whose car that is. That's my friend. I haven't seen him in a while. You know what? I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to go reconnect with my friend. And you see how these choices, little choices, going a different way home from work is not a necessarily bad decision, but it could be. And when you look at David, David's not an addict, but David is literally about to be thrown at the bottom. And he made a bad choice when he decided, I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to do what kings are supposed to do. He made a decision that would take him down a path where he was going to be stuck. For some of you, I mean, this is, this is discouraging. This is like this. We look at the Bible and we see all these people who are messing up and who are struggling. And it can be devastating. It can cause us to be discouraged. But here's the point. This is the point of what God is trying to do in the Bible. I like how Tim Keller describes this. He says this. He says, the point of the Bible is that God continually and persistently gives his grace to people who don't deserve it, don't seek it. Don't appreciate it when they get it. The point of the Bible is that the best people who have ever lived cannot and will not overcome their sin and their self-centeredness and flaws. But if they cling to the grace of God to the end of their lives, they will triumph. The Bible isn't about great people. It's not about great people. It's about a great God who pursues us even though we mess up. And even David messed up. But God doesn't leave him there. Right? That would maybe be a discouraging thing to just, if we closed right there. But God doesn't leave him in his bad choices. He confronts him in a powerful way. And I love how Nathan does this. I love it. He sends Nathan, the prophet. And you, you read this story. And you're just waiting for this. Like, I'm picturing Nathan busting open the doors, getting to King David, pointing his finger in the face and says, you are an adulterer and you are a murderer and God has come to judge you. Like, that's the way I'm picturing it because the story is so long. And David's sin is just piling up and piling up and getting deeper and deeper. And you're just waiting for the prophet to come and to confront him. But that is not what Nathan does. Instead of going to him and pointing to him, his, his finger in his face as the king, he comes to him and says, I have a case, judge, that I want you to help me with. Because David wasn't just the king, he was also the judge. And he gives him this story about a rich man with sheep and a weird guy who loves his little sheep who sleeps with this sheep. I don't know. It's a little interesting. A weird connection with the sheep. And he loves his sheep, and his family loves his sheep. And, and the rich man, there's a visitor comes. And in this culture, when somebody came and knocked on your door, I mean, you dropped everything to take care of that person. It didn't matter who you were. This is the idea of hospitality in this culture. And so that means you gave them a place to sleep, and you gave them food to eat. And this rich man decides he doesn't want to bear the expense of showing hospitality by himself. So he takes this little lamb. Maybe he steals it. 
Maybe he uses his power, his resources to go and get this one lamb from this family. And he gives it to this man, this traveler. And as Nathan gently lays out this story, saying, oh, wise King David, Judge David, help me in this situation. And you see David's response. David gets angry. Okay, he kind of gives two forms of punishment. He says, this man will restore or provide restitution fourfold. Okay, this was the, the rule of restitution that was laid out in Leviticus. This matches the situation. If you do something to somebody's property, to someone's animal, you will not just provide one in return, but you will provide fourfold. And so David's answer here makes sense. It makes sense. It's exactly how it was laid out to Levit- in Leviticus. But his next punishment makes no sense. What does he say? He says, this man will be punished. This man deserves to die. You see this outburst of anger. And you've just got to think, what is going on in David's mind and in David's heart? Like, why such a harsh penalty for someone who took someone's sheep? Why would he do that? Why why is he so burning hot? And it's pretty clear that God is starting to work in David's heart. Sometimes when somebody overreacts, overreacts with emotions or handles a situation in a way that just doesn't really line up, oftentimes it's because in their own life, they're experiencing something themselves. David clearly has his guilt in his heart starting to surface. And he knows what he's done is wrong. And so in almost a weird way of him trying to make himself feel better, I'm going to go after justice in this situation. I'm going to protect this family. Because that's what I, like he knows deep down in his heart that he has done the opposite. And then a moment that, is powerful. Nathan, after the story, after he lets David get there himself, because he's starting to think about it, David says, you are the man. And that's all it took. That's all it took. A powerful story about confrontation, about Showing someone their missteps. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this, like David has, where someone or something has allowed you to see your missteps. Because if it's happened to you, you would remember it. Just like I'm sure David remembered this moment. If you've hit rock bottom, I mean, rock bottom, and maybe it's someone coming to talk to you in a big situation, perhaps. You would remember that. Or even maybe you've experienced this in smaller situations where you've been confronted by somebody and you realize it kind of all clicks, like the lights go on. Your kids do this sometimes to you, don't they? Like, Mommy, why are you doing this? Daddy, why are you so angry? Or they say something and all of a sudden you realize, like, they see my sin. They see my struggle. And it didn't even click 
until they said what they said. But here's what we see with Nathan. Okay, we see a really powerful principle, principle when it comes to confrontation. And hear this. This is so valuable. Nathan cared more about restoration than he did condemnation. Nathan, as the confronter, cared more about restoration than condemnation. Remember, he could have come out and said, you are the man at the beginning. He could have marched in those doors, pointed his fingers and said, you are the man. Here's what you've done. God bring judgment. But he doesn't do that. He does not do that. It's because he cares more about restoring David, transforming David, helping David see his sin that he knows that if he just comes condemning, David will not get there himself. It's a good thing to tell the truth to somebody about their sin. It's a good thing to tell someone the truth about their sin. If you see them walking in the path, but it is a better thing for you to tell someone the truth about their sin and they be restored. Right? It's better if you can do it in such a way like Nathan has done it where the light goes on. They understand it. They see it. And Nathan does it with gentleness, with a story. Gently bringing David there where he gets there himself and David understands his sin. Everyone, myself, we've got to be like Nathan. Confronting. If you've ever, and I'm sure you have, you've, you've had to have a conversation with someone about something that they were doing wrong. Okay, It is so much more about how you have that, how you do the confrontation than what you say in your confrontation. It is so much more important how you do it and not whether or not you are right or not. How you do it makes the difference in how they hear it. And Nathan does it perfectly. We need to be Nathans who out of our care and compassion for our friends and our family members that we can gently and lovingly show people where they are misstepping because of the power of sin that we've just been talking about. We can't avoid it. We can't run away from it. We can't be scared of it. We, and then on the, we can't be offensive. We can't be blunt, rude, finger pointing at people's past. We have to be gentle Caring, just like Nathan. But not only do we need to be Nathans, but we need people like Nathan in our lives. Right? We need people who love us enough to confront us when we've gone wrong. Right? We need that. There's a passage in Hebrews 3. Exhort one another every day. That's the same exact word for confront. Why is confronting... Our friends are one another's every day. Why is it important? Because if we don't, we will be deceived by our sin. Like our sin will trick us and it will take us somewhere bad and it will overtake us and overwhelm us and it will destroy us. And so he's saying, confront people so they don't water their acorn seed. Confront people because you care about them and you love them. We need those people in our life. 
We need those people in our life. We need to receive it. We need to be Nathan. And we need to have Nathans. But then lastly, the power of repentance. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David gets it. He goes on to write Psalm 51, this picture of repentance. And you see David in Psalm 51 just crying out because of his sin. And for you, you know the difference between, or we need, to, we need help in understanding the difference between sorry because we've been caught and sorry because we really feel bad we've done something wrong. And there's a big difference. I remember a couple months ago with, with one of my kids, I'll let them be nameless. Um, yeah, if that helps, I don't know. <laughs> and they had done something really bad. So bad, I'm not even going to talk about it. And it was really bad. And I was deeply upset, like another level of, of wrong. And I remember going to this unnamed child. And I mean, I'm just, and I confront. Here's what you've done. And I was just waiting for the normal response the one that we've been getting a lot lately. I just forgot. Yeah, really? You forgot? Like, I didn't know, or I didn't mean to, or it was this person. Like, I was just waiting for these excuses or these justifications. And then he looked at me. He, yeah, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that didn't work too well, but... He looked at me, and he knew. I mean, he knew that what he had done was really bad. And I knew he knew. And, and I honestly, I don't know of moments like this. Like, I, that's not a normal interact, like a normal dialogue. But in his eyes, as he started to weep, He said, I've done wrong, and I'm sorry. And it was a moment where it's like, that's the difference between just saying, I'm sorry, like I'm supposed to say I'm sorry, and I'm really sorry. Like, I know what I've done. And David is in this this spot where he realizes he has done so much wrong. And what's great about the Psalms is that we get a look into this moment for David. And Psalm 51 is this moment where David realizes he has done wrong. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David was broken. I mean, completely broken because of his sin. And he repents. In his brokenness, he says, I am going to pursue 
you and making this right. That's what repentance is. It's not just feeling sorry. It's the sorry that is so true and real that it causes you to do something about what you've done. And it is the beautiful picture for all of us as we close. That it does not matter how thick your heart is with blooming oak trees. That it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how how much you struggle, what you've done. That if there can be power in the repentance of King David, that there can be power in the repentance of you and for me. That if we humbly come before God and we confess, yes, God, I have watered those seeds. I've, I've pursued those seeds. But God, I'm wrong. Then the blood of Christ on the cross comes. And in, in Colossians 2, it tells us he gives us peace. He reconciles us. And so for us this morning, we want to learn from King David. A great man who messed up who shows us what sin, when unchecked, can do, who shows us what it means to be confronted by a godly Nathan, but then the beauty of repentance and sorrow over sin and how God brings forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't leave us stuck in our oak trees, that you don't let those trees just bloom and grow and grow and grow, but God, that there is hope and there is peace at the cross. That that is why Christ came. To remove the struggle, the pain of sin, the power of sin. And you've come to give us new life through forgiveness. And just like you forgave David, you have come to forgive us. And so God, I pray that this morning you would help us to see our hearts and to see our lives. Maybe this morning you're working in our life to be a Nathan to someone. Or maybe someone's been trying to talk to us about something and we've just refused. Maybe we feel stuck by the web of our sin and we need repentance. God, whatever you're doing, God, I pray that as as we sing these last couple of songs that you would work in our hearts. If we need to pray, if we need to talk to someone, God, that you would work in a powerful way. God, we love you. We thank you for redemption at the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.